You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and with me again today is Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Paul. Hello. Um, This is the first time I think that you and I have recorded a podcast by phone where I'm not there and you are. Yeah, I'm sitting here in the studio. Uh, You're too busy to come down, so I'm sitting here by myself, but it's probably a good thing because I have a cold. I don't want to expose you to my cold because it's awful. It's awful. I also have a broken rib. Is it broken? Did you? No, I haven't been to the doctor, but it's a broken rib. I know it's a broken rib. I can tell a broken rib. Have you had a broken rib before? Uh, I think I broke a rib when I was about 22 fixing the toilet, but it wasn't nearly (laughs) as painful as this. This is really, really bad. So if the sound is not as good, there's a couple of reasons. One, I'm the one operating the soundboard, not Kyla. And two, I have a cold, so. Well, there you go. Okay, so it's all your fault if this podcast is low quality. Pretty much it's always all my fault. <laughs> That's doesn't true. matter what it is. <laughs> um, anyway, I wanted to talk to you today sort of to follow up, because the last time we talked together on this podcast, we talked about the surprise of the guilty plea in the Humboldt uh, Broncos bus crash case. And since then, there have been more driving law-related developments specific to that incident. Yeah, there's lots of people who are pushing for national regulations with respect to uh, truck drivers, long-haul truckers, especially interprovincial truck driving. And it's uh, it's an interesting thing. It's not often that there's like, you know, let's have more red tape. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, you can understand, especially particularly with respect to these people who have lost a loved one or have had a, you know, a... Uh, son or child injured in this crash that they're looking for, you know, to to have it have some meaning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and one of the things that has happened recently is Mark Garneau, the federal minister of transportation, has announced that the federal government is going to be uh, creating regulations for transportation truck drivers as a result of what happened here. Um, presently, provinces, it's up to the provinces to create these, um, these, you know, training protocols and standards that transportation truck drivers have to meet. But the federal government is now intervening and saying, nope, we're going to take this over and we're going to deal with this. And I thought that was very interesting to see them say that. Well, it's interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, I, you can understand why they would want to sort of be hands off. Uh, but we do have Transport Canada. But, the, I mean, the issue comes down to whether or not, uh, what's the constitutional authority, I guess. Um, if you go back to the 1970s, I remember when I was a kid, uh, during the energy crisis, the federal government wanted to legislate that the, uh, the speed limit in, uh, on highways across the country, and they wanted to make it 90 kilometers an hour to match what the U.S. was doing, 55 miles an hour, to reduce the fuel consumption to try and deal with the energy crisis. And... Um, the provinces said, no way, you can't do that. Uh, the, uh, it's outside of your legislative authority. You don't, the BNA Act doesn't give you that power. And so the federal government backed off and they, you know, it's 90 kilometers an hour in every park, federal park. Um, 
but uh, they never were able to to force that and I think they recognized at the time I don't know that there was any court challenge I think they just recognized at the time that it was outside of their legislative authority but I guess the federal government is saying that this is within their legislative authority and they may they may not be wrong um, in the sense that anything that has to do with like inter- interprovincial trade um, which would be you know trucks that are transporting or drivers of trucks that are transporting goods between provincial boundaries is something that the federal government is constitutionally permitted to legislate and regulate about but the big question I think that we'll have to see is whether or not this legislation is going to impact on intra-provincial, so within the province, um, trade and truck drivers. And the way that it's been characterized... You mean it can only be used for long-haul truck drivers to go provincial, province to province? can't be used for somebody who drives in the province? I don't think so. You not know, from a constitutional there's, perspective. There's lots, of, there's lots of people who have their license to drive a, a, a tractor-trailer who are farmers and they use it to just deliver grain to, you know, to the, to the, uh, uh, to market basically. Uh, so I, to impose national standards on them, they might end up with some real pushback. Yeah, I think they will. And, um, you know, I think it would be better for the federal government to deal with this, to try and and work it in in a way where they're saying, provinces, we would like you to put minimum training and competency standards in place for people who are driving semi-trucks, because we can't step in, but we recognize that this is something of importance and and it's a, a public safety issue and you should be doing it. I think this is maybe one of those situations where there already is that training provincially, and it's probably there isn't. I probably there isn't. There isn't. You have to and get a license. You've got to get yeah, that you've license. Got you've got a driver's got to... license. You got to get a class one or a class one with air brakes, depending on the truck you're driving. But beyond that, you don't need anything else. Ontario, right now across Canada, Ontario is the only province with mandatory truck driver training. So in addition to you know passing the exams and qualifications for the license, you also have to take a truck driver training, like safety training program. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, apparently, Alberta and Saskatchewan, obviously, as a result of this, are going to be introducing it in the future. So they're going to be bringing it in. Um, I think Alberta and Saskatchewan will start in March. Um, but British Columbia has nothing. What's well, an interesting thing, you know, would truck driver training have changed this accident? Would it be, would it not have occurred? Uh, I think, you know, I bet this guy was trained. I bet he went through some training before he went and took his exam. Um, I, I, it's kind of, people are always, harsher drunk driving laws. We all want harsher drunk driving laws and nobody stops to look at what the drunk driving laws are now and you know what type of harsher drunk driving law you want so now it's uh, more regulation we want to regulate federally we want to have federal regulation and would that have changed anything um, in this circumstance and is it is is it an answer I, I hate to see the knee-jerk reaction that's, uh, of suddenly you know putting on more regulation that probably would have had no uh, effect had it been in place at the time of the accident but maybe if they did it in a way where you're required to keep, you know, to keep current on the safety training, to do the program once every two years or something to that effect, um, because you know, education and putting things at the forefront of people's mind does change behavior. Yes, and of course, we as lawyers and many people who are in other 
uh, who are in professions have to be regularly retraining ourselves or taking continuing education to make sure that we are fresh in the stuff that we, you know, do every day, that we're on top of it. We have to be on top of the law. Doctors have to take retraining. Yep. Teachers go for professional development. Nurses. Yeah. Yeah. Teacher, teachers get uh, get government paid days off for it. Do we as lawyers who work in the private bar get paid off days to... You know what? Teachers <laughs> teachers work hard for the money. So hard okay. for it, honey. I'm telling you. I, 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 my dad was a teacher don't, don't, and then don't a high start, school principal. I'm not knocking teachers. Don't start knocking teachers with me. Yeah. Um, Crown Council get their days paid off. And well, that, that's, you know, that I can, I can say is a is an a issue. Fair I mean, gripe. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that is a fair gripe. They're paid fairly well these days. Their pay has gone way up over the years. Uh, and uh, legal aid lawyers pay has been cut and cut. And, um, you know, it should be comparable to Crown Council salary at a bare minimum, and it's not even close anymore. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're off topic. Uh, I just think, you know, I was looking, I have anticipation of our discussion about this. I, I reread the Constitution. Always something good to do from time to time. Have a read of the Constitution. And the one thing that I could see in there that would give the federal government the authority to regulate mandatory training for truck drivers across Canada who are operating semi-trucks um, would be under their federal power to deal with shipping. But that's in reference to not shipping, like, by ground or by, by freight. It's in reference to, like, a, aquatic shipping, marine shipping. I, I don't expect there to be any, like, immediate challenge by anybody to the constitutional validity of this legislation. I mean, we'll have to wait and see what the legislation says. But think about this, okay? They've got um, power and authority over waterways because waterways cross across provincial borders and they've got power and authority to regulate certain aspects of the road and highway system with you know when it comes to criminal offenses and they can just rely on things like the Goodwin decision uh, and uh, and other cases that we've seen in the last few years that have expanded on I mean first the, the Goodwin dis decision says look you can infringe on um, federal uh, criminal code uh, uh, power uh, because you've got a local issue that you need to deal with that you haven't been able to deal with with the criminal code, and this is an innovative way, and it also, you know, somewhat falls into your your spectrum of authority. Well, the federal government's got the same argument going the other way. This is a national issue. These trucks, uh, you know, when the BNA Act was, uh, was uh, written, there wasn't trucks driving on a Trans-Canada Highway across the country. It's a national issue. It is an issue of safety, um, and it's something that crosses borders, and it's something that is, you know, properly within our realm uh, to be dealt with as a national issue. And I think they, I don't think that they, I, I think that's how they're going to come at it. Yeah, uh, I think you're probably right, and uh, I I agree with you that likely nobody's going to be in a rush to challenge the constitutionality. But of you want to you want to stick it under the shipping. Yeah, that's how I would argue it. I never even thought about that. I just wanted to you know play out what well, I think they're actually going to do. But how? <laughs> what does it say about shipping? 
It just says shipping. It doesn't define what they mean by shipping. Now, it's in relation, it's in the same subsection as reference to marine um, activity. So, uh, I, you know, it's arguable that the original authors of the Constitution were thinking about, you know, ocean and waterway shipping, which, of course, you know, back in 1867, when Métis people were taking people, you know, down Red River in canoes, although we were also using Red River carts, um, <laughs> uh, you had this, you know, this, this shipping issue being done that way. Um, so I, I, think, I think that's an international border shipping issue. I think that was the original perhaps. concept, but, but you what know, do I know? We, I wasn't there. We in Canadian constitutional law look not to what the framers of the Constitution intended at the time. We have this, you know, in the U.S. there's always this original construction debate, what, um, and there's the debate between the originalism versus the, the fluid interpretation of terms in the Constitution. And right now there's the U.S. Supreme Court that's stacked with originalists, um, which is why everybody gets to have guns and why you're that's getting off topic. I Kyla, am. You're getting off topic. <laughs> I'm getting off topic, but I'm trying to make a point, which is in Canadian law, we view the Constitution as a living tree. Um, and I, I know a lot of people cringe when they hear that term, but the words in the Constitution are meant to evolve over time and adapt to changing needs of society. You would think that. That was a joke. Oh, okay. um, I was like, yeah. uh, well, I could cite case law if you like. <laughs> you just want to be in the Senate. Um, no. The, uh, well, that was the whole challenge, right, uh, that led to that. Yes. Uh, but in any event, yeah. Um, usually when Kyla and I are sitting here doing this together, there's facial expressions that let me know when <laughs> I should make not make a bad joke or make a joke. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm waved at when I'm going off topic and I didn't get an opportunity to wave at you when you were going off topic there. I'm Back sorry. to the trucks. Back to the trucks. So federal legislation, federal regulation coming our way. Mark Garneau, I met him once actually, really nice guy. I met him at the Arbutus or at the, um, uh, at the Kitts Beach, uh, um, boathouse restaurant. Um, nice guy. Knows how to fly a rocket probably knows how to write some legislation with respect to trucks. Right. Um, okay, so let's move on. You wanted to talk about something that is really only very tangentially related I to I thought you'd leave law. this right to the end. So, no. Um, it's interesting. People are interested in it. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating time to be in BC right now because um, the Speaker of our Legislative Assembly has come out and uh, identified the clerk and the sergeant of arms as uh, basically pilfering from the people of British Columbia for an extended period of time, probably going back over a decade uh, in a very, very ugly uh, manner and just the sort of uh, uh, arrogant... Um, arrogant theft of, of uh, taxpayer property and uh, highfalutin trips and uh, double billing for uh, per diems and double billing for days that you paid for a taxi and also charging kilometers and the log splitter. So, Kyla? And trailer. The log splitter and trailer. So there was a $10,000 trailer and a uh, $3,600 log splitter that were purchased by the clerk of the Legislative Assembly, um, one Mr. Craig James, and he had it delivered to his home, uh, and the taxpayers paid for it. And since this um, 
so back to the speaker. The speaker started investigating it when he became the speaker. He was formerly a BC Liberal, and then when we had our situation where uh, we had a you know the the BC Liberals were sort of re-elected with a minority government. Christy Clark wanted to try and govern. Uh, ultimately, the Greens and the NDP formed a coalition, and uh, they were lucky to have Daryl Plakis, who was kicked out of the BC Liberal caucus for opposing um, Christy Clark's continued uh, reign as leader of the BC Liberals, and he became the speaker. And uh, he's a fascinating guy because he, months ago, notified the RCMP that these two people had to go. And this week, he released a 76-page report along with a binder of exhibits that lays out all of these circumstances. And I keep getting phone calls from people asking me if I can somehow get that plate uh, run, run the plate through a police computer system that's on this trailer that uh, that Craig James had delivered to his house, and of course I can't. I'm not. You know, I'm a driving lawyer. Uh, there's probably police officers who could, but it would be a, a misuse of their of their uh, access to the computer system to do that. But uh, I, yes, I would like to know who that um, who that trailer was registered to, and if that plate is still registered to that person. Well, if it's a government plate, it will have a special numbering system. Well, it's a it's a you know it's got a license plate on it. Yeah, but, but license plates. So if you have a plate, like for a government vehicle, the numbering of the plate um, will be different. So. Yeah, I think it's just a plate that's been personally registered in somebody's name. Well, we'll probably be able to tell by the numbering of the plate. Anyway, um, uh, so this has very little to do with driving law, um, but it does have to do with the law generally. Um, what I find most interesting about this is that at the time that sort of the news about something fishy in the halls of the legislature broke, um, and when uh, the sergeant-at-arms and the clerk were escorted out, uh, their statements to the media were, we have no idea what this could possibly be about, before they then both promptly lawyered up with a white-collar crime expert lawyer. Well, they hired one lawyer together, which is just, um, you know, kind of really, really surprising. Well, at the investigation stage, I think you can get away <clears throat> with that. Well, it's hard to, you know, think about what you can tell your lawyer when your lawyer's also acting for the other person. Who may uh, be but, throwing you under the bus, given what's in the Plekis report. Yeah, now that we've seen the report, I don't see how it's possible that one lawyer could continue to act for both, and the lawyer who's got it is probably sending both of those people out at that point. Yeah, but um, the idea that they had no clue what it was about does not coincide with the fact that the wood splitter um, showed up yeah. and was was apprehended by the RCMP in the meantime, and then the, the trailer just mysteriously appeared on government property, and nobody knows how it got there. Like, if you don't know that you're potentially under investigation for fraud, for using taxpayer money to buy yourself personal toys... Stealing um, two truckloads of alcohol. Yeah. But if you don't know that that's why you're under investigation, why are you covertly returning the fruits of the investigation? Well, clearly they'd been in touch with the RCMP, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, the RCMP arranged to seize that wood splitter, and the RCMP have photographed the wood splitter and finished what they had to do with the wood splitter and now given it back to the government who, you know, the rightful owners of the wood splitter. Anyway, it's uh, angering to me as a person who um, is 
sort of monitoring the government and their use of our taxpayer money. And you know that I'm like a bit of a zealot when it comes to this. I get very mm -hmm. angry when I see them spending money on you unnecessary advertising. I sued the government. I, I failed in my suit, but I sued the government over it. Um, it is uh, it is something that is near and dear to my heart that that government should not be wasting uh, money and I always think that you know it's a it's an issue of bad management when I see that um, people are are pilfering and stealing like this. It's not just bad management; it's also bad policies. Like the the way the story is being told is that there was you know you had to have sign off authority on your expenses from somebody else, but. Uh, that each of these people, Lenz and James, were just signing off on each other. So you could essentially create like a two-person scam and continue to run it. So, you know, each one of you backing up the other's, the other's fraud. Well, they were also able to not disclose anything pursuant to freedom of information requests because yeah. they were exempted from it. I don't know if that's in the legislation it or is. if it's, it's by in, tradition. It's in exemptions in the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, although John Horgan announced today um, that they are going to be tabling legislation to amend the Freedom of Information and Protection of Pri Privacy Act to make that information disclosable. Because the reality is that nobody would have gotten away with something like this. I mean, assuming what's in Flecka's report is true, <laughs> nobody would have gotten away with something like this because reporters seeing somebody having, you know, 54,000 dollars in travel expenses in a year would go WTF and FOI that material and find out that it's all a bunch of nonsense and that people are billing for taxis when they drove their personal vehicles and, and collecting mileage that they never used. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we need to we need to revisit privacy law that impacts uh, the ability of the public to keep an eye on the activities of the legislature because we can't trust them to manage it themselves. Which is really sad. It's really sad. And it's really sad to think that these are people who are supposed to be in some of the highest positions of trust and authority and that they abused it in the manner they did. However, we are now getting way off of driving yeah. law. And I only wanted to try and shoehorn it in because it's been such a big story. And there's been another big story that has been in the news this week. And it got people very upset. There was anger and... and oh, someone uh, called me scum on Twitter as a result of it. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't involved. it kind of got pushed off the news, thankfully, fairly quickly um, right after uh, this big story broke. Because this is the story for... 2018, 2019. I mean, BC politics is, uh, is as they say, a blood sport. And uh, we are going to be watching this one play out for a long time. We should probably start a separate podcast, the Wood Splitter podcast or something. Um, but <laughs> Tales from behind <clears throat> the Wood Splitter. But the other big story um, was really not a big story in the grand scope of things, but it really got people um, sort of uh, uh, angry, riled up, riled up mm -hmm. uh, was an acquittal. Um, or at least, uh, I guess, did it lead to an acquittal in the end? I didn't we, read that. I mean, we don't know, but I think it's it's sort of the ultimate Looking result that, way. that there is an acquittal. Yeah. It's the only evidence. Yeah, so a constitutional violation in the search of a vehicle where fentanyl was found. 27,500 fentanyl pills. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's like, I don't know what the street value is of a single fentanyl pill, but, I mean, if it's five bucks, which I seems reasonable. I don't know. <laughs> I'm guessing. Uh, then, you know, you're looking at $137,000 worth of fentanyl. If it's 20 bucks, you know, that's a lot of 
that's a lot of money. And just recently, you and I were talking, I don't know if it was on the podcast or not, that all of these police officers who were trained to identify uh, cannabis being shipped on um, mm-hmm. on uh, the Trans-Canada or Highway 16 or the Yellowhead, um, really their skills were kind of gone now as yep. a result. But apparently well, there's is- still a shipping of fentanyl. Yes, but the problem was here, in in large part, a failure of the police officer to use the proper skills to identify potential drug trafficking. So what happened was an individual, Mr. Rigo, uh, was pulled over um, by police for speeding, so a routine traffic stop, and the officer noticed a bunch of air fresheners and some other uh, indicia that he thought was consistent with his training that this individual was involved in drug trafficking. He only had a suspicion at that point, Um, so he detained the driver, and he called for another officer with a drug-sniffing dog to come. When the drug-sniffing dog arrives, he sort of does a search of the vehicle, like a walk around, and half sits, but doesn't sit all the way down. And the drug dog handler says that this is an indication when they sit, but it was only a half sit. Well, it was actually at one point he said a quarter sit, and I think that ended up being really the thing that sunk them for it in the end. And so uh, as a result of that, he was arrested. The vehicle was seized and taken to the police station, and then it was taken apart. It was no, it was taken to it. It was taken actually to a um, to a tire shop. Oh, okay. Uh, and they lifted it up and they took the tires off it uh, because they thought that the fentanyl or whatever, they didn't, you know, the identified know substance that yeah. the dog, the dog was never put on the witness stand. Um, rough, rough, rough. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, are you still refusing to answer? Um, so they uh, lifted it up. They took the tires off the rims. There was no drugs in the tires. They put it back down and the officer again took another look around on the inside of the car and then he noticed a, a, um, just your standard access compartment into the back of the wheel well in the back um, and open it up and there found all the pills. So he hadn't seen it there earlier. Yeah, um, but he, he only looked in there because he saw some Bondo in like the seat pocket or something. Yeah, He's I don't like, think... Oh, well, having Bondo in your vehicle is suspicious. Yeah, the Bondo, I don't think it raised anything to anything. But the, you know, one thing that wasn't mentioned... One thing that wasn't mentioned in the decision is that the actual location where the dog sat down was a long way from where the pills were. The dog didn't sit, where the dog quarter sat, rather, was a long way from where the fentanyl pills were ultimately located. But that really wasn't addressed in the very long and and thoughtful and longer than it needed to be, I thought, decision. Yes. Um, Justice Brundrett uh, was the judge who decided it, and and he determined at the end of the day that um, the shoddy evidence that it was obtained roadside, didn't justify the detention of uh, the vehicle and the search. But what I found the most interesting about it was the way that he related the use of one's vehicle and your right to have your vehicle to the 24-2 analysis, so whether or not the evidence should be excluded. Because obviously, as we've seen from the reaction to the 27,500 fentanyl pills being excluded from evidence here, what we see is that this is something that the public does take very seriously. We know about the seriousness of the fentanyl crisis, yet he found that notwithstanding the huge impact that this would have on the administration of justice to throw this evidence out, um, 
the impact on the accused was so significant in taking away his vehicle and taking it apart that it justified excluding the evidence. I didn't read the exclusion part. I only read the, did, did he, was that, is that how it went in the exclusion part? Because yeah. that wasn't covered in the main Yeah, decision. I mean, he okay. found it was a very serious breach because... Well, there was also a serious 10B breach too. Yeah. Yeah. But also, yeah, but, but when you look at whether or not to exclude evidence, the way the law, um, for those who don't know, and Paul, of course, you know, um, the way the law looks at it, you look at first how serious is the breach, and then secondly, the impact of the breach on the person's charter-protected interests, and finally, um, the the um, administration of justice has to be balanced against that and the importance of the evidence at trial, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think this is a really progressive decision. I was actually quite surprised to see um, that outcome because it elevates the importance of having a vehicle really to how people feel about having their vehicles. I, 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 I agree with that. Um, but I think the people who are upset are upset about the fact that, you know, that, that it wasn't admitted because the dog didn't sit fully. Um, and basically I think it's important to talk about sort of how that comes about. So imagine you're pulled over and you're asked to blow into a roadside breath tester and the roadside breath tester is going to give, you know, one of a few different things. It's going to say fail or it's going to say warn. And if it's a fail, then it's an arrest. Um, or it's going to say warn, or it's going to say, um, it's going to give a digital reading of what your blood alcohol concentration is, which could be zero if it's below 59 milligrams and 100 milliliters. So imagine you get, an, and using an FST now in BC, you get a red screen if, you, if it's a fail and you get an amber if it's a warn. So imagine, you know, you go and you blow into one of these things and the police officer gets a screen that's not any one of those things. It just lights up red but doesn't say fail, for example. And the police officer decides to, you know, make that detention, breath demand and everything on that basis. Well, we would look at it and we would say, well, hang on, that's defective. That's not, you know, it's, we know that there's a problem. We know that this is not reliable. And what we had with this dog was, you know, he's walking around with the dog. He agrees that he could not have made the, the arrest without the indication from the dog. And the dog did something the dog has never done before. And this dog you know, has been exceptionally reliable, 100% reliability uh, rating on many other instances during you know, controlled tests. Uh, and in this case, instead of sitting down, the dog just moved uh, the dog's, you know, behind down, uh, started to move a quarter of the way. And in that case, it's really the same as blowing into a defective breathalyzer. You do not have the evidence that you can rely on from that dog. Uh, and that dog's ability to detect these substances, it just doesn't exist. And the police officer said, and, you know, the judge relied on this, said, look, I needed that indication from the dog. I didn't subjectively have the opinion that I could detain this person and arrest him and search him on the rest of the evidence, which was really his arm shaking, uh, multiple cell phones. And it turns out the multiple cell phones was one of them was a cell phone case. So there was only two cell phones. Uh, and a wad of cash and the wad of cash the officer thought was about $2,000 and twenties. And it turns out it was only $600. <laughs> so, you know, basically in the end, the police officer is testifying, look, I, I realized I didn't have the grounds to make the arrest detention, um, without the dog. And in the end, the dog only really moved there behind down, uh, a quarter, which is not something the dog's ever done before and is not part of the dog's training. 
and is not part of of something that that is accepted as a positive indication in their training. So I, that's the reason that ultimately he came to the conclusion, which makes sense to me. Yep. Oh, absolutely. It makes sense to me too. I just, from like the driving law perspective, I think, you know, the the decision on 24-2 was, a, I think, a real victory for drivers. Well, I think on the driving law, just thinking about the the whole concept of of reliability of that test, you know, so when a dog is coming to smell your car, there's not, it's not like a, it's something that's written in the code, like a approved screening device demand where you're being, you know, compelled to participate with the, with providing the sample and it's, and it's authorized by law because it's in the criminal code, despite the constitutional violations. Here you've got um, a police officer coming along with a dog and there's no, it's not written out anywhere how this is supposed to work. It's not like in, you know, a, a, a peace officer who has a reasonable suspicion that you may be a person with an arm shaking and multiple cell phones may have a dog smell outside of your car. I mean, that's, it's not written out. But the point is, if they are going to have a test, they've got to stick with their test. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you're talking about a significant intrusion into somebody's liberty um, when the context of roadside stops is supposed to be very minimal. And a, a dog search is very much like a roadside breathalyzer because they both proceed on the basis of a reasonable suspicion standard. And so it's meant to be this minor interference in your liberty that is very short in duration. And then once it's it's done, it's done and you're free to go unless there's some very positive, very clear indication that gives the officer reasonable and probable grounds. And that's, I mean, that's what you see with, with the roadside breath testing. That's in constitutional challenges to roadside breath testing or charter challenges in impaired driving cases, a lot of the the cases that are relied on to articulate reasonable suspicion are sniffer dog cases. Yeah, exactly. And it's a it's a, a kind of a frightening thing that you could be pulled over at the roadside and the police officer can just basically, in this case, he gets him to sit in the back of his police vehicle while he walks around the car with a sniffer dog. Um, I'm always amazed with those sniffer dogs, though, that you could smell... I mean, the dog didn't in this case necessarily and probably didn't smell it at all, but that they can detect some of these these um, prohibited substances it always shocks me. And reading about it and thinking to myself, Ziploc bags uh, with fentanyl pills, I bet the dog didn't even smell it. Because again, it's in, the, it's in the, I think it was in the driver's side rear uh, quarter panel uh, where, the, uh, where the fentanyl was found and the dog sat down on the front passenger side. So it's it's quite a, a which is why the police officer was turning his mind to the tires. But of course, there was also like four tires in the back of this guy's van. It was a Ford Aerostar van. Then he had a really really shifty explanation. But that shifty explanation, um, you know, I, it was also obtained in a manner that's probably not admissible, and it's not something the judge had to deal with in the end. Right. Well, I mean, I think all of this really highlights how driving law, again, the point I always make, how driving law has such a huge impact on, on uh, important cases. Now, there's one thing You that make I that want. point all the time. And I do. You, I, made that, I made that point originally, and now it's like it's become your point. Well... Years ago, I said, look, all of these interesting cases arise from driving. Kyla, you've got to keep working and doing this. And you said, okay, you're right. 
I see that. And, <laughs> yeah, I said, and, okay. And then, but I started the podcast. Yeah, I know, but that, <laughs> no, but that was like that was how I managed to keep you to continue to 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 work with me in my office was to. Otherwise, I knew you'd go off looking for something else that nah, you'd find you, interesting. You, you pay me. So that, That's that true. Yeah, 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 you're well paid. <laughs> um, oh. the, uh, <clears throat> no, the um, other thing I want to address about it, because uh, some of the discussion that I've seen on Twitter troubles me, um, is what happens now to all of those fentanyl pills? It appears to me that some people are under the impression that they just go back out into the streets. Oh, yeah. No, the police just uh, drive right over to that guy's house and go, oh, we're really sorry. Here's your fentanyl back. I don't think so. No, the, it'll all be destroyed. Um, the uh, they'll Probably they might use some of it for training. They might uh, take some of it to the lab to test it, to use in their, uh, to, to test their instruments, to make sure their instruments are functioning properly and the rest of it will be destroyed. I doubt they'll use it as testing to make sure their instruments are functioning properly. Yeah, you never if know. You're, if you... you're using an unknown, uh, a substance of unknown purity as a standard. Well, it may not be a standard. It may just to, you know, be testing against your standard. Perhaps, yes, I suppose that's true. I mean, it's not like there's any shortage of, of opportunity for well, them to the, test the, things for the shortage, right shortage of opportunity to test it, but I don't know how often they're they're successfully seizing it. So, I mean, this was a pretty, this was a large bust. Right, but just so the public has some comfort, it doesn't matter um, whether or not this person is convicted or acquitted. The fentanyl is not going anywhere where it's going to end up in the hands of somebody who could be killed by it. Yeah, even if the evidence is inadmissible, it's still going to be destroyed by the police. So in a criminal trial, the only evidence that you get back if you're um, successful in your trial is stuff that is not... um, subject to a civil forfeiture application and stuff that you are lawfully entitled to possess. So, so he might get his BlackBerry back, but by the time he oh, gets yeah. it, the, the battery will be dead and it will be so out of date that I'm sure it's been replaced many times over. Yes, I think we ran into that with an iPad once. Yeah. Um, but you don't get any illegal uh, items back. Um, so there, I, mean, I, I think the public should just know that and take some comfort in the fact that just because um, this person is acquitted, it doesn't mean that the public is necessarily at risk. And he's on the police's radar at this point. Well, he you was know, he was before, but for different yeah. offenses. But yeah, yeah. but now, now they the police, regardless of whether that evidence is admissible, know that he is somebody who is connected in some way to large quantities of fentanyl. And they're going to be monitoring him very closely. Next time they'll walk that dog around that uh, van two times. Yes, and they'll bring two dogs. Two dogs and let them sit. And yeah, so. Yeah. So no, no need to fear for your safety. Um, the police are the police are watching, and drugs aren't going back out onto the street. And it's interesting to see that they, um, you know, and and think about it. That corridor still exists. You know, Highway One from the Lower Mainland. Uh, heading off till it splits off um, at, uh, at either uh, uh, Merritt or or Kamloops. These are still corridors of uh, of drug trafficking, and so I guess the police are going to continue to be able to use those skills that they developed mostly when they were dealing with cannabis to look for other things. And uh, yeah. it's a uh, you wonder about the tools that they need to be able to search for things like fentanyl. And apparently they have dogs who, you know, dogs that are capable of detecting these things, which is 
fascinating. Yeah, and so this police officer earlier questions. Well, and this police officer had that dog right with him. So he was doing speed enforcement and he had the dog with him in the car, which is, uh, you know, that should provide comfort to people too, because there's RCMP officers driving up and down Highway 1, pulling people over uh, with dogs that are capable of smelling it. Maybe the dog didn't smell it this time, but dog's capable of smelling it. So I, I'm, it provides confidence for me uh, in the ability of the police to, to spot these people and, and deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you go. Another interesting week in driving law, um, perhaps in some ways only tangentially, but at least uh, in some respects, uh, an interesting driving law week uh, for us. So um, if you have any driving law related questions, please feel free to reach out. Um, you can reach us at uh, 604-685-8889 or uh, online at vancouvercriminallaw.com. And tune in next week. We will be speaking with Caitlin Perrin, uh, who is a lawyer at uh, YYC Law in Calgary, and we're going to talk about Alberta's uh, administrative license suspension system, what that looks like these days, and some of her concerns around that, as well as some of the sentencing options that are open to people charged with impaired driving offenses in Alberta that we don't have in BC, and how that impacts the prosecution and resolution of impaired driving cases in Alberta. So it's going to be a very interesting discussion, and you certainly will learn something new about Canadian driving law.